Hello and welcome to the People's Game for the first time in 2021. After what seemed like a very short summer, men's footy returns on Thursday night. And to kick the year off, we're looking back to look forward using Amazon's new fly-on-the-wall doco making their mark to jog our memories. Once we've done that, we'll hold a little roundtable to discuss the issues and stories we expect to see in 2021. With me to Nuff Out is my co-host, Gordon Meredith. Big G, welcome. Well, welcome to you, mate. We're here at officially at the People's Game Studios, and uh, it's lovely to be down here at the uh, People's Suburb of Elwood. All are welcome, and you two are welcome, sir. People's Suburb of Elwood. <laughs> Said no one ever. I'd say it's a pretty welcoming suburb. Elstonwick Park is the home of amateur football in Victoria, and the amateur is those are the who play for the game, mate. And we are the people that talk about the football because of the game too, because we love the game, all for the love of the game. So I think it's actually confirmed that Elwood is the people's suburb. I'd like to know what it is about the trees south of the Yarra that allows them to drop orange leaves, because we don't have any of them around my house. There's the no, north doesn't have orange leaves. There's, there's literally not a single orange leaf on the ground at the moment. I got around here this morning and I was like, "What? Where are all these? Where are all the burnt leaves in the north? Because they're not. Yeah, there's just millions of them. There you go. Maybe you just got a lot of trees on your street. We just have a lot of deciduous trees. Yeah, and you have ever, and you have evergreens. Right. So maybe the grass is greener on the north side. I reckon we. Yeah. Let's divert this conversation quickly back to speaking about football. So a bit of housekeeping. So we are going to do. Well, new year, new us, new year, new me. So a different theme every week throughout the season. Uh, so we're going to alternate between four different types of episode. So the first one is going to be roundtables where we discuss current issues in the game. The second one is going to be book clubs, movie clubs, culture clubs, you know the drill with those. The third one is going to be retro rewind, similar to what we did last year because everything was better in the 80s when we didn't have the internet. And then the final one will be interviews with some of our favourite footy humans titled People of the People's Game. So we're going to cycle through them on a four-week basis, should lead to a little bit more diversity in our content this year. Footy is a never-ending journey that's all-consuming. The reality is this season will not look like any other. I just grew up on the game. You love something, you don't know any different. Sick and tired of dealing with racism. It affects me personally. The tweet said Nat Newick is lazy and unfit. Is football what defines me? We don't have family in Adelaide, so the football club has become our family. It's not a win or loss. It's either a win or a learn. I'm not going to play this week. Once you know your purpose, you'll be unstoppable. It's going to be tough, but it could be the best week here a lot. You gonna miss me? Yeah. He kicks the goal. I can watch. Show me the boy. friends and flags. It's all in. You'll obviously know, Gordo, being the nuffy that you are, that on Friday, making their mark dropped on Amazon. Seven episodes, just there, hour long. How much of your weekend did you sacrifice to this noble cause? Well, I went for seven hours, so I sacrificed seven hours, JB, and I uh, did it in uh, very pocketed time periods, but we got it done and it was quite an interesting and, and enjoyable watch. We got to uh, about 10 o'clock last night when I need to watch the last episode, turn it on and then my partner realised it was movie length. It's like an hour and 20 minutes, mm. the, the, the final, the finale episode, the grand final episode. But we got through it and, and here we are. So what was your first, what stood out the most on first watch of these little episodes? I think that 
the thing that makes this a premium product, I think, is the level of cinematography and the, the quality of that, the standard, the standard of the production value behind it. It's the first time I think an Australian, or other than the test, also done by Amazon. Those two are the first kind of Australian sports documentaries to be given the proper, like high, high level. Not so much high brow because I think the stories you can tell are the stories you can tell. But it's not. This is not a handy cam in the corner, sanctioned by the club. You know, we'll get someone down here to freelance. Three blokes doing it for an independent film festival. It is. It's an Amazon production. It's done at Amazon level, so it just looks really schlick. Is probably the first takeaway, and you go. They've obviously committed to this yeah. piece. I don't think it was as like needy, like as gritty or as tellally or as like honest a documentary in that vibe. Because I think by adding that schlickness, you don't you don't feel like it's real a lot of the time. And I feel like some of the time you get these retelling of conversations. So it feels almost like I think a lot of the explanations from the executive production team said this is. Our theme was like reality TV. It felt a little bit like reality TV. So an event would have happened and then it would be like, oh, hey, Cogs, come across here and tell us how you feel about the event that just happened as opposed to seeing the event that just happened and making our own decisions about it. But that did happen. Both did happen, but I felt like yeah, those cutaways and those moments with the protagonists felt a little bit too schlick and polished to be like a truly raw documentary in my Yeah. Opinion. It was interesting because Luke Tunnicliffe um – one of the executive producers of Jam TV, et cetera, worked on The Recruit. So there was sort of a, a blueprint vibe almost, I think, that this was kind of built from in how it kind of came about. It's definitely a TV watch. The Ultra HD is unreal. Mm. Like that was the, So the quality of the drone footage, the first thing that yeah, really stuck out is like I don't think my eyes are that good. Like the picture quality of me just walking around in the world is nowhere near what the quick picture quality of this documentary is. That was the first thing and like – the flyover drone footage of everything is just incredible. Um, and even like the new camera work on some of the games that they've done, you know, ground level shoot sh- shots of things that we all saw from the TV camera. But I think the fact that they didn't rely heavily on the archival TV footage of a lot of stuff last year was, was beneficial because um, it meant that you were still kind of watching some of those games from fresh perspectives and with fresh eyes. I thought the other thing that stood out probably was that it's really, yes, it's a little bit reality TV, but it's it's essentially a story or a documentary about leadership within the AFL. And I think the, the, the initial kind of blueprint that they came up with was they wanted, you know, to cover all six states, which is why the six teams are the way they are. And they wanted, you know, pre- key protagonists. But it really ends up being um, Peggy and Brendan as kind of executive level leaders. Mm-hmm. You end up with Stuart Jew as a coach. You end up with Rory Sloan as a captain. You end up with Stephen Caniglio as a captain, um, you end up with Eddie Betts, probably not as a football leader but as a social leader mm-hmm. is kind of his role in the doco. And also I think playing off the elder concept as well. So obviously he's of Indigenous background, elders are really important in that, in that community and that culture and then he is kind of the AFL's elder and, and where they explore and the kind of themes that he has to deal with are reflective of that, I think, narrative decision as well. Yeah, and then Nick Nat probably fits into a similar, he's kind of like a cultural icon, kind of an NBA-style figure within the AFL. Same old cult icon than cultural icon. Maybe. He has, a, he has a following for being, you know, being marching to the bit of his own drum type type situation. Yeah, and I, so I think there was an element of that to all of the different protagonists, which meant that, and I guess also the other thing is the prevalence of the coaches who often even, like in Sloan's story, Nick's kind of ends up being the second, the second character and, 
much the same with Nick Natanui. You end up with a lot of Adam Simpson and you end up with a lot of Leon Cameron. You get a lot of different perspectives on leaders within the AFL. Um, and it's probably quite confronting for some of the people in the doco because viewers are naturally comparing them all to one another. And that straight away, there's obviously complexity in how long people have been in different roles, but it's kind of a, some people come off looking, you know, like they're being compared to industry tycoons or leaders who are the best at what they do. And you're kind of looking at other people going, oh, you're just not as good as him, which is kind of one of the brutal parts of the way the whole story is presented with all the narratives kind of overlapping. Mm. And that, that is very interesting. As I said, if, if this becomes a documentary accidentally about leadership, that, that exploration of what it means to be a leader is, is really well explored. And I think kind of without some of the coaches knowing in particular, and obviously I think that's the intent. Like not, the documentarians aren't there to try and change a narrative or alter a narrative or create one. They're just there to tell a story that's happening. But it is very interesting that that's probably the most in-depth and kind of nuanced part of this documentary which is, which is interesting because I think it is still focused around, you know, one team going on a winning grand final in a year that was affected by a pandemic. But it's a lot, yeah, the parts that I found most interesting are far removed from that main narrative. Yeah, and I didn't find the Richmond stuff that interesting because it's kind of been written. Like obviously Conrad's done the books and it's like, so the, there's a bit of a shock factor of being there, but I don't think anyone was un, under any doubt that Damien Hardwick was a very clear communicator, mm. very clear at distilling messages. But a lot of the leaders that you probably don't see or haven't seen as publicly, some people like Stuart Jew, Matthew Nix, their development was very, very interesting to me. Um, I think where it got the, probably the hardest character, I think, throughout the whole documentary was probably Stephen Canelio. And his direct comparison as a captain is Rory Sloan. And if you kind of look at Stephen Canelio as like a first-year captain, really, really in the early stages, like really struggling to find his feet, I think. And then you're comparing him to this guy who's kind of so confident in everything that he's doing and so confident kind of in his rounded identity as a person that it's really kind of you're kind of stark sitting there at the start and you have to understand the kind of experiences and context of those two characters. Otherwise it's you're comparing an apple with an orange. Mm. It's really unfair on the first-year captain, I think. But I think on the flip side you're comparing an apple and orange as a grouping with an apple and an orange. So you have, and I suppose all of this should be done with like spoilers alerts, spoiler alerts. If you haven't seen it, go watch it first because it's kind of hard to talk about a documentary without mentioning what happens in the documentary. <laughs> Getting that obvious warning out of the way. You have a first, yeah, a, first year, a first year coach in Knicks and a long-term captain in Sloan. Sloan ends up missing out on most of the season with, with a thumb injury but has no kind of wavering doubts about his ability to lead still and what he needs to do when he's off the track and how he can show standards and do all those things. When he comes back, he's ready to go. He performs well. He gets on with it. And so Nick's kind of treats him really carefully and gently and like supportive. I suppose that's the the luxury of being a cellar dweller is that there's no one's expecting the Crows to win deep down inside. So there's no pressure to win. So there's no pressure to like put the heat on your leaders. The flip side is the Giants. So you have a long-term coach in Cameron, you have a and you have a brand new co- uh, captain in Coniglio, and I don't know. You're a, you're a coach. I don't know how that leadership style as a coach of just putting your number one leader under the pump day in day out, game in game out, where literally he like Coniglio is singled out every game they lose, saying you did not, well, you weren't tough enough today, you weren't hard enough today. 
Like this, this, it didn't say the words, this loss is on you, but he didn't need to. Because he basically goes, he went around the whole room, singled a couple of blokes, and then it's always Coniglio that he goes to and says, you let us down today. You need, you need to find some form or whatever that, 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 was, that means. That's almost my favourite quote of the movie. To the point where, like, so we watched this with one of my housemates who has no real footy interest. And the, there's a bit in a pre-game, post-game situation, he goes, turns to Cox, and Cox, find some form. Just, just like he can go grab it out the kitchen cabinet mm. and we sort of now we'll be walking around the house and someone won't do their dishes and they'll just, you know, turn to me and be like, Jack, find some form. Like, but it's that whole storyline is brutal. The thing that is interesting about the way Nick's treats Sloan, it's the dynamic, but also if Nick's loses Sloan, he loses the playing group because mm. Sloan has the playing group. Whereas at GWS, it's not really clear if Cornelio has the playing group and it's not really clear if Cameron has the playing group throughout. It's, it's the, the lines are so different. And also, like, Nix and Sloan, I think, play a really good cop, bad cop thing throughout. Mm. So Nix will be like, you're not defending. We need to defend. This is the scene where Brad Crouch has it's been in all the grabs. Yeah. Like the shoe, you know, if you don't want to defend, put your shoes in your bag and walk out. Yeah. But then you kind of get Sloan then chirping in and throwing the, like, but if we do this, boys, this is what we will be and this is what – and we'll be – we're so much better than what we're putting out. So they play that really and well. And that's Sloan being a stronger leader because there's another grab where Nick says, like, if you don't – I'm sick of coming, like, coming to this and talking about this game plan. If you don't – like, how can you not know the game plan? Bring a book to the – like, bring a book to the meetings or whatever. And then Sloan jumps in and goes, well, actually, I think people don't know the game plan because we're not performing on game day. So maybe let's work out a way to learn the game plan together that everyone understands. And again, it's a leader from the people understanding what his people need and communicating that to up. What is, what is the executive? I think actually, like the, the one thing I tell you this mostly was from an organizational point of view, this would be a really interesting watch for executive teams in, in all businesses, in all organizational groups to be like, how are we communicating what we want from our people when we're so far separated from it? And most of the time in footy, coaches are like the head coach is so far separated from what player number 36 on the list requires or how they feel, how they think, or how they like, how they're processing day-to-day environments and then add in the fact that they were in hubs and the fact they can only train groups of eight add in the fact that, so they've got a really novice level person in their organization having to operate at an elite level just by expectation. And then you communicating in a way that where you expect elite retention is, a, is, is kind of funny. And then seeing a leader be brave enough to say, well, actually, no, let's not, like we need to make sure that people can get this is really interesting to see play out, which is kind of credit, I suppose, to the Adelaide Crows, which is funny because that's all last year we got, they got pandered for being poor culturally. And that's the one thing I think the teams we thought were strong culturally weren't necessarily that strong, like the Giants who got to a grand final year before. And the teams that we thought weren't, like an Adelaide, like a Gold Coast, who we thought, oh, yeah, they're just, you know, top 10 picks, but did, did they actually care? And we turned out, well, actually, no, they do because they have a fostering leader in, in yeah. due. Yeah, and I, I think it was like Sloan acting as a conduit, really, hmm. between which is actually what a, any good captain should yeah. be doing, really, is feedback, feedback, feedback. Yeah, it's a really different dynamic. The other, like, Gold Coast were really interesting watch. We were kind of interested when we watched this. We were like, what was, what was the Gold Coast narrative like where were they going to finish was kind of like an overriding question because they kind of start in a blaze of glory glory mm. but i think um for all the reasons that you've kind of articulated the 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 attitude of jew throughout is very tender 
um, and very kind of gentle, but also has intensity at all the right moments. Mm. And I think it was actually a change Stewie Jew in kind of a lot of people's eyes, I think, or will change him because I think people just kind of saw him as a big goof. Mm. And I think you kind of get a lot of goof, but then you kind of get. He's very parental in his coaching style. And so he has that, he has that trust, trust in his children to go along with the parental uh, analogy to say, I'm going to give you the leash. Like just have fun, like be, be kids because they are kids basically. And then, but when you disappoint me, I'm going to get angry a little bit. I'm going to get mostly intensely disappointed and say that you're better than this. Like, why did you do that? Like, why, why aren't we taking it seriously? Why do I need to babysit you? Like, why aren't we following the game plan? If we follow the basic rules I give you, be home by 10, like to continue the analogy, eat your greens, then we get wins. Like, if you follow the basic scaffold, I don't care what you do outside of that. Just follow the basic scaffold. And then when they finally get wins, that quote I think that pulls like the whole season is that we went from me, the coach, saying we can win games of football any given week to them believing they can win games of football any given week. And I think that's the narrative arc of the Suns is that now they're a team that walks out proud to be a Gold Coast Sun and says, yeah, we can we can take it on. And that will grow hopefully this year. Mm. There'll be a team that, you know, says actually maybe we can make finals. Yeah. yeah. And, actually, and actually believe it. Yeah. And I also, I mean, I think that everyone started at different points on the like Richter scale of anger mm. because obviously losing a grand final the year before for the Giants and then everything, they get back in, they immediately – lose to North when the season resumes. So they're always on edge, tender hooks, and they always feel like they're underperforming. Because mm. they I are underperforming. Like, yeah, whereas I feel like the Crows are underperforming, but in a they kind of expected to underperform because of the clear out. And then the Suns really overperform early or get the development that they want mm. and then taper off. Um, so those trajectories are very um, different. I'm not saying that that means that Cameron should really have yelled because by – Episode six, like Cornelio's whole storyline leads up to him getting dropped and how he deals with that moment, which kind of show I think shows his development as a leader because he owns it with sort of a level of vulnerability that I don't think he had perhaps early in the year. I think he just got I think he was a broken man by the end of that. Yeah, he was. Yeah. I don't think I don't think that was development of leadership or development of personality. That was a youngish man being brutally broken down by his executive leader over a series of six months. Yeah, it was pretty savage. Even to the extent where the explanation was, like, so imagine just in your workplace, you've got stuff going on. Like you're going through a global pandemic. You're living without your family. You're living out your friends. Family and friends are obviously very important to him. That's the whole storyline behind that. You know, I went to the barbershop. My dad looks exactly like me. That's how I met my barbershop friend. Like the importance of family. He comes from an Italian background. All that stuff. So that's there and he's away from that. So he's obviously going to be struggling. Instead of saying your output's not there this year, your creativity's down a bit a little bit, like are you okay, JB? He says we could protect you. Like we could, you know, put you on medical leave. We could put you on carer's leave. We could put you on compassionate leave or whatever. You know, we could say omitted. We could say injured. We could say rested. We're not going to do that. We're going to make an example of you and say we have standards here to keep at the GWS Giants. So we're going to have you – publicly listed as admitted because you're not good enough to be now 22 at the moment as a leader, as a people that you look up, as you looked up to as a person that I meant to have trust in stuff, all of that. If you're not good enough to be here, you can't be here. And we don't think you are, which is also false because there was no way that he was not in their best 22. It was a, it was a joke of a decision because they had, I mean, they lost to Melbourne. 
the, the, they needed to win. They dropped in. They lost. And that's the worst part of it is it, it feels like, you know, when we see massive CEO blow-ups, you know, BP has another oil leak in the, in the ocean. What you want is a CEO to come out and go, like, I didn't do it. I didn't cut the pipe. But at the end of the day, it's on me. And so I'll go in and fix it and I'll cop, cop the blame. I don't think there's once this in that, in that documentary where Cameron cops it no. on the chin. No, no, he doesn't. He goes at his plays. He goes at his captain. Goes at the media. He goes at the media. Goes has at he, everyone, basically. Has he, has his weird, he you just know. just basically PH them is his mantra for the year. And it's like, well, no, Google maybe. What maybe, does this mean? Yeah, yeah. That, that was the most, one of the most confusing moments of the doco. Yeah. Um, it's interesting that he was the one that eventually threw the cameras out. Um of one of the meetings. I think mm. it was after they lost to Adelaide, which is the the game that essentially Canelio is mm. dropped for. Um, the, the footage at the end when everyone is like Sloan's off kind of enjoying his life and surfing and everyone else, Richmond are like celebrating. And, and then Canelio is back in the gym. He's literally on a weight bench. I'm yeah. like, oh, you poor With the saddest face ever. Thing. Yeah, yeah I, I think there was a lot of um, – I just – yeah, that style of leadership. I, th- there was points where I think Cameron just – lacked empathy and almost like a sense of any sense of perspective because the one that stood out to me was after they lose to North, literally after the season resumption. Everyone has been in lockdown for 12 Mm. weeks. They lose to North and he comes in and he starts talking about life and death footy. And I'm sitting there and I'm like, Leon. Do you know what just happened? We're in a pandemic. Do you know what just happened? 100,000 people are dying every day. Like you can't just the tone deafness to be like standing there talking about life and death footy when everything is happening so fast in the world. Mm. Like you've lost a game of football to an average side by 30 points, but you haven't played for 12 weeks. There are probably some reasons that are flying That you're around, a bit flat. That you might be a bit flat. Yeah. You don't know. Like it's, yeah, that was like kind of a, a level of weirdness that just. And that was juxtaposed by other coaches. Basically Sims, Adam Simpson came out to West Coast and said, look, it's just football. Like at the end of the day, Let's just play footy and have fun and be thankful that we can do it because, you know, half of our organisation is no longer in the office. And then Hardwick's message was basically it's really tough being in the hub, so what are you missing? You're missing your family. So make sure you're doing your family proud. And, it, and they were really smart in saying that, like, right now it is ludicrous to think that football is important. Like the actual act of football is important. So how about we try and find some way to create meaning? And then from that we can kind of, legitimise and get rid of the guilt that we feel about, you know, being lucky enough to do this. Yeah. And the same with you. It was like you guys are young and he went the opposite way in the sense of like you're young guys, you're all 18, 19, 20, 24. Like this is the best thing ever. You get to live you get to live on the Gold Coast with all your mates and kick a footy every day. Like if you're not having fun, you're never going to have fun. So let's just have fun. So like all those coaches got it and said like where's my group out? What are they what are they worried about? How can I connect with them and how can I give them meaning? That's that's great leadership in my opinion. Because a lot of the time you can. You can be very, you know, French fatalistic in your philosophy, especially when there's a global pandemic going on, nothing has any meaning. Mm. And the, and the, the good leaders, the ones that got their companies, their organisations, their businesses through the pandemic were the ones that found you a hook. And the ones that failed, like Cameron, were the ones that went in, in the lifeboat themselves and you go, I'm under pressure. I made a grand final last year. I need to do it again this year. I'm going to be at the end of a contract. The media's on my back. It's all about you. And it's like as a leader, obviously, it's not about you because you know you don't kick the footy yourself. So you need to work out how to get them kicking the footy better. I think um, of the people that would be most, I don't really think there's anyone in this documentary that would regret doing it potentially other than Leon Cameron. Mm. I reckon if 
the media. I mean, I'd be interested to watch his media conferences this week because if anyone asks him about it, yeah, it's pretty awkward. Like for the reasons that you've just outlined, yeah, the, the treatment of Canelio is pretty brutal. Um, he did at one point kick cameras out, whereas I feel like everyone else comes out of this looking better than they probably did at the start, mm. and, and including and no Canelio one, himself, and no one. None of the coaches in particular actually restrained themselves. They all gave sprays. They all have sailor's mounts. Like it, it, it was still a football environment where they kind of gave you the barrel but then they gave you a hug, except for Cameron who gave no hugs. Yeah, basically. Well, it was interesting at the same time that Cameron was blowing up every week, it took Simpson like three or four West Coast losses. Be like, right, boys, we, we need to talk. Like yeah. some of you are just not doing your jobs properly, yeah. not eating properly, et cetera, and it takes that long for him to get to that serious chat, whereas Cameron is kind of like there straight away and then back there. And the same with all, like that's the thing. And that's that's impressive from Simpson and it's impressive from Harwick when Harwick does the same. The difference is they have big cups to hang on to and bring out to the front and say, this is why we play footy. So it's not that impressive because you can wait four weeks as Adam Simpson and go, well, no, I've won a premiership. We've made finals every year. Like we're, I'm not going to lose my job. I can understand why Cameron's on edge. Oh, 100%. It's just, it's just not the execution that's going to be effective which is why it makes Knicks and Dew so impressive because they have nothing. They have nothing to stand Nick's on. Knicks literally has nothing. He's, Knicks has rocked up at a dumpster fire and been like, well, better make the best out of this situation. And whereas Dew has like, well, it's kids, I'm going to have some fun with it and Nick, I'm a father figure anyway. So he has, yeah. Like Knicks is probably one of the best performers in this whole documentary in my opinion. Yeah, he's very straight-edged. Yeah. I really, really kind of liked, for someone who, you know, mortally hates the Adelaide Crows. I've got a problem going into this year. So was this what you expected? Was it what you were expecting? Was what you got what you were expecting? Um, it was probably better than I expected because I it does, as I said, it does feel like a high production value documentary and it is very, I think coming into it people were talking to be more like 30 for 30, a more thematic-based documentary as opposed to just a narrative-based documentary. This is a very like chronological although not entirely chronological order. It's a bit skew if you know the chronology. If you know the season. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, documentary just follows, you know, here's the start, here's the end, here's what happened. Here's some of the highlights. That kind of, that kind of model was quite simplistic. So it's not as, as like a uh, complex storytelling arc or structure as I was expecting if you went 30 from 30, but it's very hard knocks. So it's very, you know, NFL films. It's the, it's, the, it's the typical Amazon, what they roll out. What they roll out with, yeah. you know, also what they did for the F1, what they do for Tottenham, all, it's yeah, what they did for the test. It's a, here's, here's your behind the scenes, get in there, get to know the people about the AFL, which I quite enjoyed. I mean, sport has a natural, particularly seasons. There's kind of only one structure often. Like the structure's kind of ordained at the start, generally. Yeah. Like, but I think, I think if, if I was going to tell this story, you wouldn't start – I wouldn't even bother starting with the preseason. I just go, you know, what what is the story of twenty twenty? It's COVID. COVID. COVID's so the you, strength. So you go from there. Yeah. I would say is, is there's the break, and start your story there, and then it's about how people deal with that. Would be the way I would approach it. That's a very different documentary. Yeah. 100%. That's not. That's not. And then again, they didn't make this documentary because COVID happened. They made this documentary. It was in the works for like three years beforehand, and they finally got the go ahead for twenty twenty, and then a pandemic happened. So I think they were scuppered a little bit. I think they were also blessed a little bit by the sense of now you've got really high stakes, high stress, locked in environments where you actually have more access. So that part was really interesting. COVID was a winner. It was the a- only thing that hurt them in terms of COVID was A, there was a short period where they had to down tools and B, 
Um, they had to pivot because Peggy was meant to be a bigger part of the doco mm. and she drifts out of it because she doesn't go to the hub. So then they basically use Dimmer as a second Richmond figure. Yeah. So they end up looking at him, whereas in the early episodes it's there's a lot of Peggy. Um, so on that, how much of the Peggy-Brendan-Gale relationship do you think was manufactured and how much do you think was organic? That's could that, that relationship kind of exemplified my like my theory that it's very reality TV in the sense of they'd be having conversations, they'd have a good one, and then they'd be like, oh, can you run that conversation back to us? Because that's my cynical hat. Because I don't think any other president in any other club is that has a relationship that good with their executive team or their football club, really. Um, like I don't, I don't see, I don't even know that many other CEOs, to be fair. So that's, that's probably the other point as well. But it seems that like Peggy and Brendan run the football club together, whereas I feel like most other clubs have the president and the CEO and the CEO does the business and the president's the spokesperson, but they're very, really a united front. Is that, I think that's, it's a thing, right? Like Peggy and Brendan. I think they are. Like, like an Peggy, amazing Brendan team. And the board. Yeah. I think, no, I thought it was, I thought it was reasonably organic. I liked yeah. it because, I liked it because they're two very different people. Brendan mm. Gale's an ex-player and Peggy's like this American lawyer and they're kind of united by football. Ironically, yes, but also there's traits are actually the way around. So when you say that, you know, the former player and the lawyer, you think the lawyer will be the numbers and the letters and the, you know, the, tech, the check boxes and the player will be the relationships and the connection to the club and the importance of, you know, club culture and that kind of thing, fandom, et cetera. It's actually the opposite of the way around. Well, Peggy's a fan first and foremost. Mm. Yeah. But she comes in it with heaps of empathy, heaps of like ability to acknowledge relationships, heaps of understanding Unusually for an, an international new to the game, how important this game is to her club's members. And then Brendan approaches it from the nuts and bolts. Like he is the CEO, which is a good thing, obviously. But like he is, yeah, you know, it's dollars, it's cents, it's, mm. you know, it's wins, it's losses, it's, it's, it's having to, yeah, deal with the pandemic and everything that brings it down. We're in a $6 million hole now, et cetera, et cetera. A lot of their conversations strike me as, and maybe this lends itself to thinking they're organic but they struck me as conversations that you have with someone you spend a lot of time with. Mm. Like when they're chatting on the fence at training, mm. you kind of got the sense that there's not that much to say because they do it every day. Like when they're talking about Black Lives Matter, it's not a raucous conversation. It's not like a really invigorated debate. No, it's, it's just like, like they've been chatting about something else. And yeah. then there'll be like a little bit of silence and then someone will throw in and pick it. Oh yeah, that's good. And that kind, and even when they're like watching the games, it's like, oh, how's your fam? So there's a little bit of, I think that probably is one of the things that I think, yeah. Authenticates legitimacy. Like we're talking about, yeah, your family, how are they back in the States? We're even like, you'll be watching Amy, they'll be like just, you know, texting a little bit. Like, you know, they just strike me as to be. But just the fact fans. that they were watching the game together is my point. Yeah. Well, that's also, there's also. That. Like, I just don't think any other club has that relationship between their board and their CEO. No. And I think that's Richmond's strength. Mm. It has been much storied and discussed is the, the unity at that. Level and the unity of thought. Um, the board meetings are interesting because they've got like Malcolm Speeds on the Richmond board, um, having been an ex-head honcho of the ICC, um, dealing with some of those crisis management moments is, is an interesting byplay that I think shows you the importance of that relationship because they're not knee-jerk. So once they've kind of built it and there's that level of trust that they've established, you then kind of understand why their business meetings are the way that they are, I mm. think. Um, and even on that, that, it, that again just shows a person has to make a t- challenging decision coming out looking better 
then Cameron. So Cameron has to sack his captain. He does it really poorly. Brendan has to let go of half of his staff. Or a, yeah, a good. I think Richmond let twenty go. Yeah, it's or, a big, or a third of their yeah non-football staff. It's a big yeah. And understands the severity of that decision. Understands the complexity. Understands the consequences of his action. And then does it in a way that is empathetic but still strong. Like I can't do anything else. So I have to do this. I am sorry. I'm here for you. Reach out if you need me. And then like just sits there for five minutes afterwards, staring at an empty Zoom call screen. Just wanting to cry. It's pretty, yeah. yeah. And I think a lot of these moments actually win the AFL back some favours from fans or not even fans but, like, you know, brief acquaintances, people that would tend to footy on on a Friday, those fans that would have been lost during the pandemic because it's like, well, why are you – the same response that most Melbournians had to the Australian Open was like, why are we doing this? We don't want to, we just came out of lockdown. We don't want to go back another one. We were in lockdown all through this football season and a lot of people would be thinking, if, if they're casual fans, why is there sport on? That's like the least, most important thing ever. And some of the things that happened in this documentary show that, you know, either, either A, it's all shared experience, like they were going through the same thing as well, or B, a lot of time it was tough for them as well. Like the Eddie Betts story, he basically says, yes, I'll go into the hub. My wife and my four kids will be okay with me. I'm going to be away for 32 days. And then ends up there six forever. months later, he comes home. Yeah. And so that, that part of like, that's why the players are upset. And then once you understand that part of the story, it makes more sense. It like, you know, they're not these rich prima donnas complaining about hub life. They're people, their husbands, their brothers, their, their sons, their friends that like are missing their connections just like we were during the pandemic. Oh, the NFL so would be delighted. That part humanises the whole yeah. system. It humanises the whole competition. It humanises the clubs, humanises the players. So. I think that part is like really I think powerful. there's something in this for everyone. Mm. Like we watched a bit of it with our housemate who's not a footy fan who kind of got sexual, who'd had outtakes from it. Um, so I actually think you can pretty much watch this as a footy nuffy and enjoy it. I reckon you could watch it as a member of the just an average punter watches a bit of footy and enjoy it. I reckon you could not like footy and enjoy it. And I reckon you could be an overseas sports nuffy and you would love this. So I think it all for the AFL, like in commissioning this, like it ticks so many boxes in terms of actually fan, fan engagement going into a new season, fan engagement at a time where there's potential for people to jump off because it's harder to afford memberships. We've already paid, a lot of people have paid a season of membership with without any anything back. If you're a Carlton fan, you get that look at any season. Like That's a good thing to have mm. for your free Amazon 30-day trial that you can cancel, like, you know, if you remember. Yeah. So on that, who wins more out of this documentary, do you think? Amazon or the AFL? Who will get, will they get more subscribers from this? Like, is there enough shareability of this documentary series that you would recommend it to people outside of AFL fans? I'm going to be. Is it a water cooler conversation? You get to work and it's, you know. Yeah. Jeff, I know you hate the footy, but geez, this documentary series was amazing. It really gets me out of it. I'm going to throw it to a few people in the UK that don't. Because I mean, as who are sports people? Yeah. Because I'm interested in what they think, and yeah, I'd be really interested to give it to people that don't like sport. Because I, I think the AFL wins. I don't know. Because I don't see Amazon's business model. I don't know enough about. But because I feel like seven dollar subscription to, is not that much anyway. Mm. So it's really about having bulk good content. So this for them, like I think it ticks their box. People are probably going to subscribe in Australia because of this, which helps because they're on the platform. So you've got hook. So I think it kind of works. I think it's a winner for everyone. Maybe but, but, do Leon, you but honest- maybe Leon Cameron's the only loser. 
But do you honestly believe that the AFL will get more fans? I understand it can strengthen its connection that's already there. I understand it can bring past fans back to the game potentially or jaded fans from last season. But do you think it will turn non-football people into occasional football people? If you lived on the Gold Coast, okay, yeah, and you just someone just managed to make you watch that document, yeah. would you then be interested in watching the Suns? Probably. Because if I didn't have a footy team, Right now. Mm. If I was like a really impressionable five-year-old who didn't want to barrack for dad's team, yeah. we know a couple of those, Yeah, this would be where I would – I could easily pick a team. If I didn't love Richmond, it's not hard for me to get involved with – Oh, the at the end of this documentary, I wanted to buy a GWS oh, – no, sorry, not a GWS. <laughs> I didn't want to do that. I wanted to buy a GWS voodoo doll. Um, <laughs> <laughs> at the end of this documentary, I wanted to buy a Gold Coast membership this season. Because that, that like yeah, it yeah, feels yeah. like, like it's such a nice, but it feels like such a nice place to be. Yeah, not not specifically the Gold Coast, just like the Suns' training facilities. Yeah, I missed like, a trick by not being a top ten draft pick in the last five years. Yeah, it just sounds like how cool would it be to be part of this group? I've really wanted to have success. Like they are such a fun, like friendly, yeah. open like club. So for me, like if you just gave this to kind of neutral people, I reckon this is a pretty big in because mm. like next, so this weekend now. Starts to, and this starts to kind of roll into previewing the season a little bit, but it gives you kind of added meaning to events for those six clubs yeah. this year in terms of you like kind of want to see the next chapter of all of the different stories that wrapped up. Manage. So once again, Prestia, pinpoint, Martin, the superstar, long ball. Going to see a lot of that this year, we hope. High fly, Rewalt Lynch. Gee, Rewalt punched the pack and... It made it a little easier for the big man Lynch. What a start. To explain the new rules as Lynch comes in with a new club and the Richmond fans are delighted. Well, that's looking back. Let's look forward. So what's your Thursday night plan? No plan yet. No I'll be, plan? No plan. I'm not going to the game. I don't think I'll get a ticket. I'm not a Richmond member. Um, I do know someone with, you know, plenty of AFL memberships. So That is, that is true. <laughs> I can give, give him a call and we might go down to the game. Who knows? <laughs> I'm still in that weird – I'm excited for this season, but it's still – I'm almost – like with everything, I think it's really hard to plan at the moment because it's still that – Potential for your life to be, you know, yeah, and, massively interrupted. And it would have been less so if we hadn't have had the snap lockdown. But now, you know, there's some more cases in Queensland, there's some more cases in New South Wales. All it takes is one person to come down here and then it's like, oh, we'll be snap lockdown again. So, yeah. That and, you know, restricted crowd sizes and everything else that goes with it and inflated prices because of the restricted crowd sizes, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I'm kind of like, yeah, I don't know how much live football I'll actually go to. But I'm excited to watch some football. But I'm also not excited for the banality of, like, round one hot takes, if you know what I mean. Oh, yeah. Round one. Well, yeah, it's like the season's so long. It's back to a normal length. There's so many variables this year because – We've got longer quarters. We've got an interchange cap. We've obviously got man on the mark rule, mm. like all of which we will discuss. But it's a very like last year was a kind of an anomaly for so obviously for obvious reasons as discussed, shorter quarters being one of them. But then when you move forward, it's like, well, that really makes it hard to create a guide for this year in terms of what to expect. So there's that. There is like, again, just that general like state of the world vibe. And then the other thing that's probably interesting from a fan point of view for me as well is – we recognised probably last year the ease of watching on TV. Um, you know, the fact that a game, game lengths were shorter last year really did again lend itself to television viewing. 
So I'll be interested this year as a kind of, for me personally, I used to be happy going to three games of footy a week. And it'll be interesting to see if I can go anywhere near that now because I just don't think that there's as much incentive to. A, because it's going to be hard to get tickets and B, because it's just so easy to watch it at home. I know that's that's easier, but I think atmosphere-wise, even if it's only like a half full MCG socially distanced is going to be a bit weird. Yeah, we've still got a lot of stages of weirdness to go through. I think we what I would want is to go back to, you know, this, the nostalgic old days of 2019 <laughs> where you just, you know, you, you, you knock off work and it's like, let's go to the footy and you get in versus now where it's like, well, have you booked? Is it booked out? Yeah, there's a lot of admin now. Yeah. And I think that we're probably, and this is like a general metaphor for the state of the world, like footy's probably another year. It's definitely at least another mm. season gonna, is going to be impacted by COVID in some way. Now, I have no doubt that, I mean, even the AFLW season that's obviously been running for weeks will show or has already shown how fraught these things are. You know, Collingwood and Brisbane moved their match yesterday from Brisbane to Melbourne, you know, literally with 20 hours notice. So that sort of thing is still, mm. there's still potential for that to happen. And so I think that, yeah, it's it's still going to be a very ad hoc year. And I think that like the COVID complications will still be a significant part of the headline, and then in one case in Queensland, it's like, well, no one can go there now, and that's it's going to get tricky. Tricky. We've still got premiers who have different stances on border restrictions and all of that stuff that was there last year. Mm. We're just probably not going to get like a mass wave because everyone's going to be like, well, we've got five cases, let's lock down until this is gone, mm. because no one wants the hundred cases a day that keeps you inside for three months. So that's kind of where the policy is now, which will be interesting as a play for football. So bearing that in mind, so there's obviously a lot of variables. Have you engaged with the men's preseason? Well, it wasn't much of a preseason to engage. Well, there was like two practice games. Yeah, which I don't think I don't think matters. I think the like the the hunger for football is still there, and it's still filling up talkback radio, and it's still filling up TV channels, and it's still filling up Twitter feeds, and yeah, they live stream people. The clubs adapted and live streamed the practice matches, and we had our one round of the Amy Community Cup series, whatever, whatever it's called, Fantasy and then. And uh, and yeah, so I engage with it, and I think I think people have tried less to be as tricky as they would in the media with the whole, you know, this is what's going to happen, and this is who our premiership favourite's going to be, and there's been more of an acceptance that no one knows. No one knows. The funny thing is, everyone's willing to accept that now. Yeah, but no one ever knows. Yeah, no one ever knew. The only thing people really know is that Richmond are probably a natural favourite because they're a champion, and then everyone else is chasing. Yeah, and that's basically how the Dockers. Which is how it happens every year. And that again, it's like (laughs) it's no different. That team that won last year, they're probably going to be pretty good. They might be good. They might also fall off the perch completely. Yeah, we don't know. That's why they're going to play twenty-two rounds of football. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I've also preferred, I think, um, at this time of year, like. The AFLW season's reaching what should be a pretty exciting climax, having had no season last year and no mm. complete season. So there's a lot of unfinished business there. And I think the way that that plays out with a three-week final series culminating on Easter weekend will be a really, really good watch. Um, and I just think, like, through this period of the year, like, it's a lot – it's a much better – there's just more meaning on the results because they're actual games. Mm. Whereas like the preseason games in AFL really, I don't think there's ever much correlation to the end of season output of a lot of teams. No. Because um, a lot of, like if you're a young team, you want to win, but like Richmond don't care. Mm. They lost at Melbourne. No, they don't care. It's about it's about runs on the board, miles in the legs, all of those cliches. Yeah. Having knocked cliches for half an hour. Um, 
So I guess that's a better place to divert attention, I think. Mm. So this probably follows on from our little looking back chat. So who are you most excited to watch in 2021? And there's probably three prongs to this. So I'm going to ask for a coach, a captain, and a, or sorry, a coach, a player, and a club. Uh, well, I think not excited to watch, but I think the, the Leon Cameron redemption story needs to happen if he wants to ever coach at a different club ever again. Or if he wants to, is he out of contract? It will, he will be eventually, and I think he has a lot of making up to do now. Because yeah. I think if you look at that, if not to get too much into the into the weeds, there's other places for, for us to break down analysis. But the Giants aren't as good as what they were. Everyone is leaving the Giants and continues to leave the Giants, and now they're not that good on paper. And so now he's stuck with a with a smaller Arsenal, less powerful attack, and a very unique and uh, criticised coaching style. So it'd be interesting to see how he adapts and, like, does he really change his expectations? Will he do a dimmer or a Buckley and embrace love and vulnerability? Or will he just be angry? Yeah. That's probably the coach. That's the coach. My coach. Probably Stewie G. And that's probably also linked to a team thing for the reasons that we've already articulated. Like, I think that where that goes with Raul playing a full season, can they actually jump into the eight? Or was it a bit like, yeah, is your optimism founded and are you going to now convert the gains um, into – real results. So I think, yeah, and Stewie Jew, and I also think like how people talk about Stewie Jew, et cetera, on the back of the doco, do people actually get over his weight? For example, like will that change? Will he now be seen as a more serious operator as Gold Coast start to climb? I think that's the, like it's probably a media narrative almost that I'm kind of, like what do we say about him now mm. is going to be what I'm looking at it from a coaching perspective. So a player. Player is interesting because I think the shortened preseason means you have less focus on one particular player. You haven't seen them play per se. But I'm curious about Max Gorn. Less so about Melbourne, but more so about Max. Like, can he. Like, I think there's, there's potential there. Like, he has all the talents, kind of like Petraka as well, probably the two of them. Like, they have these talents, like, these talents to be elite players, but can you be elite in a, in a club environment that clearly isn't? Yeah. And so that, like, can they. Can they be like a great like can he be the Nathan Buckley of Collingwood in the early two thousands? Like where they make a grand final when they're not actually that good. Like on paper, they're not that good, but they have one or two elite players. Mm. It, does he have the capability to do that? Will he will he embrace that or will it become too hard and will he get beaten down? Yeah. That's a an interesting watch. And I think for both of those players, like one of them could win a brown mm. And so it's a question of can you just do that? Are you gonna just go and have a nuts? individual season for Gorn or for Petrarca. Mm. Both good looks. Um, an individual player. It's a really tough one. Um, kind of interested in like there's already talk of Marlon Pickett being dropped for round one and he got put into a different role on a wing. So there's talk of him now playing on a halfback flank. So in true JB fashion, I think I'll run with like where that story goes after like two premierships in your first two years you know, my kind of feeling with Marlon Pickett is that he, no matter what happens from here, he'll always be remembered for the 2019 grand final and that's kind of the rest of his career will kind of be like the asterisks that happened after. Mm. But I'm interested as to whether that cycle will change at all or whether that narrative will change at all. Um, given that it's now been written like we were talking off air about, you know, Australian story, book, good weekend, it's already been done. And so like are there act- is there going to be a notable add-on to that? 
And that's, that's interesting from an outside point of view. And then from an insider's point of view is how do you motivate yourself? There's a really interesting TED talk about, I forgot the author, but the author of Eat, Pray, Love. And she talks about her writing career. Like her, she knows that her greatest success ever as an author in terms of accolades, in terms of income, in terms of, you know, potential for greater um, exposure came with her first book. So then how do you reset and go, all right, I will never beat that. Like it's just statistically improbable that I ever do something that big ever again, but I want to continue to write. So how does a player do that? Like how does a player go, I won it in my first year, so how do I, how do I, how do I, I can't do that again. Like that can never be done. So I have to ignore that as an expectation. I'll never feel that way again either. But how do I keep on with my career and find the motivation to do all these things when I know that the ultimate payoff from now on will be less than that ultimate payoff was at the yeah. time. And then the other thing for those, for Pickett, and maybe someone like Tom Lynch, who came into Richmond, won a flag straight away. Mm. Neither of those players were there for the building of the the fort, so to speak, or the yeah. building of the dynasty, but will probably be players that can have a role in, you know, whether it gets a three or four year extension mm. or whether it doesn't. And maybe that's how you sell them on the narrative, right? And that's probably the cliche that we missed from uh, the documentary is that uh, – Adam Simpson's, I think, says winning never gets boring. And I was like, well, no, winning never gets boring. But doing all the hard work to keep winning does. Yeah. And so that's the, that's the thing, the Richmond. The Richmond story this year is that. Like, are they willing to go back to the well again? And for mm. how long for? Mm. Oh, Dusty declared the, the dynasty in the doco. There's that great footage where you're on the, there's your fucking dynasty. It's like, um, well, went back to back, but that's okay. I mean, yeah, no, it's <laughs> true. But then again, like, will they go back to the well? Yeah. And like, will players like Marlon Pickett and Tom Lynch, who have already had the ultimate success very quickly at the club, you know, will they be people that now drive that? And it's not even those players, though, either. Like, again, we see it in every championship team. As soon as you win a championship and you're player 20 through to 34, you go, that gives me opportunity and gives me leverage. I'm a great system player. I can go join your system. I can improve your standards. I can boost your, boost your depth. I can get more playing time if I leave. Mm. So it's like, well, either you replace those players or you convince them to stay, but then like for how long, how long does winning as a selfless team-orientated goal fulfil you when you could also get monetary success, more game time, other success elsewhere, be a bigger focus in that success? Elsewhere, when does that when does that balancing act no longer pay off? Yep. And so I think that's this is the year we see that in Richmond. And so a club, poor Adelaide for mine. I was going to go. The, the, I want to be a Gold Coast member. I think that's just a good love story. But I think <laughs> like, the actual narrative there is pretty obvious. You started liking the beach as well at some point in the last three months. Yeah. So I don't know what happened. And so like that's pretty obvious. You know, a bunch of young talented kids going to like hopefully hit their straps and have a shake of the eight. But it's not a lot of nuance there. Like. We, it's going to happen or not happen. And, and there's probably also like you could say the same of about six clubs. Yeah. Whereas Port, I think, you know, we're asking Richmond, like how do you go back to the well when you've already felt ultimate success? Port's the opposite. Like do, does Port suffer the GWS fate? Yeah. They're like they almost got there. And last year they were minor premiers. That was their year. And then it they, was their year. they basically they, blew it in the prelim against they Richmond. They also had a – Significant and Brisbane are probably a, Brisbane is similar boat in some ways, and they had the advantage of basically being at home the whole year while yeah. everyone else wasn't, or at least the Melbourne clubs weren't, and the Western Australian club. They had the best of the border restrictions, basically. Yeah. Played games in front of crowds at Adelaide Oval, got a prelim final at home, lost it, um, arguably shouldn't have, 
Yeah, they're, they're – I mean, I I think they're probably my premiership favourite because I just thought they were so fucking good yeah. last year um, for the journey. But I think what does that do to them? Because they should be really kicking themselves last year. And if they are, then does the glitch set into the wolves? Yeah, well, exactly. And that's the $64,000 mindless cliche. Uh, mine is probably – and I've kind of popoed or poo-pooed. I'm going to have two here. I'm just going to have two bites of the cherry. Yeah. Um, I've poo-pooed teams that sit outside the eight trying to get into the eight because their stories are all similar. But Carlton's a really interesting one. I don't know yet. I think they have reason to be very confident in David Teague, but he was – there was kind of a sense that his appointment was made because there was – and this was probably true of the coaching appointments at the same time. He was kind of the person that had been tried a little bit, very much like Reece at North – so they gave him the role. And now the question is like, can he take them into the eight and probably be better than perhaps what they thought he would be? Um, if he does that, do they truly believe that he's their guy? And how quickly, if that doesn't happen, will they jump off him? I'm, I'm a David Teague fan, but I think Carlton, you know, can they become a behemoth? Um, I have a lot of time for them as a football club for a lot of, you know, uh, I have family that work there. Um, and so I just have a lot of time for their program. I think yeah. they're a really good organisation who treat their people really well. My question is, can they actually become an on-field behemoth? They've, I don't want to compare them to Richmond because, fuck, I don't want them to win three flags in the next five, ten years. But they're now debt-free as well, which is a significant achievement. They were on track to do that pre-COVID. They've done it post-COVID. So that's kind of my watch this space. Like, can you become a real Melbourne powerhouse again? Because I think they've got the potential for it to be like Gold Coast will get good. This, their heartline's still the Gold Coast, right? Like Carlton get good. Collingwood maybe drop off, but like Carlton get good. It's like Richmond Carlton has significance again. There's a big. I think that's important for Melbourne footy in terms of those old clubs because Essendon are going to be nowhere. If we accept that Collingwood are slipping, they're kind of a bit okay. What are you? So that's probably one. The second one is Brisbane. Because everyone's like, oh, how exciting are the Young Lions? And I think last year for them was just an enormous – it just has to be an enormous disappointment, right? Mm. They beat the Premier in a qualifying final and then got pantsed in a prelim. And then they kind of had Chris Fagan, who's generally done a lot of things right, kind of not have that like, no, the time is now, like attitude, which we've seen a lot of coaches, you know, you can't keep waiting. So my sense for them is like they have to get a sense of urgency – about what they're doing because they finished in the top four now. Only one, they've won one final out of four. Been probably comprehensively beaten in two of those, I think. So, yeah, the question for them is like, are you going to get serious? Like, and realize you're in a window and embrace what that means. And then I get similar to Port, like, can you hold up the same level of form that you've had in the last two years where, you know, now you, the first year, obviously, Brisbane had a bottom four or bottom six draw, which they won't have this year and mm. they didn't have last year. But then last year they had the added advantage of being mm. at home for the whole year. So then the question is like, you don't have one of those things this year. Can you be this good without them? Mm. And if you can, then and maybe that's actually where the answer is. Maybe they got a lot of advantage from those two things, showed in their finals results. Can you now jump and actually win the thing? And that's probably mm. – and watch this space. I mean, the one we haven't talked about is Geelong, who have I think now gone for this – kind of the last tilt really by topping up. Mm. This is like Gary Ablett left last year, but there's a sense that this might be the last dance for the Geelong 
dynasty. Well, you can you can join uh, two Thief of Thetis there. You can go The Last Dance meets the uh, Four Falls of Buffalo because the, the Geelong keep making finals and they keep not making the thing. Like they have been perennially a top four club. Like you could say that makes you a successful club. But basically, but everyone then, says that Chris Scott's a yeah. bad coach because he hasn't won one yet. Mm. You can. It's, oh, he has won one. Oh, he, he won his yeah. first one. He won the yeah. The one that everyone gives him the asterisks for, which again, what a, what a terrible position to be in as, as like a coach wanting to build a legacy. And so you're, you're stuck here now. Imagine being, a, I don't understand Geelong members because obviously they had the success a decade now ago, a lot of it all in one go. And ever since then there was no real drop off. They just kept being a very good football club. So now it's like if you could guarantee, if you could turn to a Melbourne or a St Kilda member and say, we're going to guarantee that every year you finish top four and you play two funnels minimum. I'd be like, yes, where do I sign? But now, you know, big clubs in inverted commas go, that's not acceptable. We need to be winning premierships. And it's like, statistically, you're not going to win it. Like, that's just how it works. There's one out of 18 teams gets to win it. Like, so be grateful for what you've got. But I suppose that's, that's the whole point. Be Icarus. They want to be Icarus. They want to fly and touch the sun. And I think, yeah, how many feathers do they have left on their wings? Probably one season's left. Yeah, well, even the players, like Higgins has not got a lot of great footy left mm-hmm. in him. Um, he's going to be pretty handy. Yeah. You know, their list is... Hawkins, Selwood, it's getting Dangerfield. Old. They're all getting old. You know, the only one that's... I mean, Cameron will obviously be there for a while now, but again, he's not going to win a flag off his own boot without the others. So the drop-off, I think, will happen there. If it doesn't happen, it's a miracle because mm. they've they're just, at that point, defying father time. But I don't think it happens this year. No, it doesn't happen this year. This is like we're... Going back it again. Yeah. Like as Stuart Jew said on that docker, we're balls out. Whatever that, yeah. whatever that means. Um, <laughs> That's a weird phrase. Mindless. It? It's it's so weird in context. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that's probably the one with Geelong. And so one without these are all been on field narratives. I suppose the one we haven't mentioned, but the off field narrative is what a, what a Colin would do, because I think in the last two to three years of sporting um, four balls. So we had you know the cheating scandal and all the cultural things that happened with Cricket Australia. We had Ben Stokes and all of his off-field issues that happened, and the redemption arc was them performing on their on the field, and that, that being a way to gloss over their issues in the background and that being an issue way of saying, oh, they're back, you know, everything's good again. I don't think Collingwood has that luxury this year. So they enter this, they enter this for round one looking like a pretty bad organisation in shambles, needing a new president, like they're they're at a position of transition off the field, which never bodes well for on-field success. Can they redeem themselves this year, or is it just do they have to just be very vulnerable and accept where they're at, not only as a football club on the field, but as a football organization off it? It's it's a really tough question with Collingwood because, and this is mentioned in the report. It's like. Their bunker down, one in, all in, us against the world mentality has kind of, it's been their strength, but also their their absolute undoing. Mm -hmm. And so what I'm, what I I think Collingwood as an entire football, et cetera, football department, business, et cetera, has to find a new ethos to unite behind. And so the question is like, can you convert one in, all in, us against the world into something that ticks all your boxes in an off-field sense? Or does that kind of general attitude, like everyone's out to get us, create problems? I don't know. I, I think that there's an identity shift 
that has to happen there. But I don't think their project is a one-year project. I think it's a 10-year mm. project. Because you're talking about like completely reinventing DNA on and off the field. Mm. You've got a president who's been there as a an omnipresent figure for like 25 years and he's gone. Yeah. So that's this is like... And it's hard to rewire though because it was successful. Like they did have, they had two, three, four periods of fluctuating success on field and off field. It was always success. They went from bankrupt to being the biggest club mm. in the, in and the they country. Now believe, they firmly still believe that they're the biggest sporting club. They've still got netball and other branches mm. of sport. You know, they're a foundation AFL club, AFLW club with a really strong AFLW team. Are they potentially savvy enough to pivot to that? And like this year their focus is, so you go, you know, all in. But it's not all in and against everyone else. You just say all in and then focus on the inclusivity factors of the rest of the club. It's an interesting everything about where they go is interesting. Because I don't think I don't think they're redemption on field either. I think they could win a lot of games this year and people will be like, I don't think they will win a lot of games, but hypothetically if they finish second and won a lot of games, I don't think people are like, Oh my god, the place is fixed. Yeah. Like I think that there would still be significant questions because everything there and the the position they're in and such a long such denial for such a long period puts them in. Yeah, they've got a lot of. They've also never bought any social capital. Like they've enjoyed being the bad guys. Yeah, and so now they're getting their comeuppance. And so, like, how do you? Like, and then when do you stop? Like, when when is enough? And traditionally speaking, the tall poppy syndrome in Australian kind of pop culture philosophy is that we won't stop until you're the bottom, and then we'll be like, oh, we're sorry. Yeah, we went a bit hard then. Yeah. Up you come again. <laughs> it's hard as a Richmond supporter to feel any sympathy. Um, so final one to finish off. You're a betting man. Yes. I'm going to give you a market. Over-unders on soft tissue injuries this year. Less interchange, so cap at 75. And we've got longer games again. So what do you reckon? We're just going to be watching seven blokes twang hamstrings a week? Or are we just going to be watching a lot of people have mandated which we've seen in like we've seen in a lot of other sports actually as a COVID era thing thinking very much of the England cricket team like more resting a little bit of like stopping people potentially being in bubbles and hubs and away from home for long periods so I wonder how that tied with the kind of the injury um, capability or potential in the AFL this year will kind of will that lead to a different ethos I don't think there'll actually be more injuries there'll just be more focus so when we when we inevitably get injuries because that's how sport works, the obvious and lazy storyline is to say, oh, interchange has been reduced. We've got injuries. Ergo sum, interchange reduction equals injuries. And I don't think it's that simple because if it's soft tissue, then like they've had, like they haven't stopped running. We didn't have a sudden spike in injuries post-COVID. Mm. So we, we, we shouldn't now. Like that, I don't think that's how, how it works per se. And also it's like, well, if we have more soft tissue injuries and you have less contact injuries because like those people would have had contact injuries and now are off with soft tissue injuries. So that, I think the, the sum of injuries will be exactly the same, but I think the focus and the story behind them will be very, very different. I do agree though. I think we will see more management of players, especially if they are forced to hub again based on the lessons they learned last year. Mm. What about management of footy podcasters? When are we going to schedule in our yearly week off? Yearly week off. Uh, whenever you, whenever you go to the snow, mate, whenever you go to the snow. So, yeah, middle of July. Usually that's my, my dark week and a half where mm. I just don't speak to anyone. 
Um, but now we're so accustomed to using Zoom, I can just Zoom you from the snow. Can you though? Because I don't have to answer. That's true. It's very, very true. nice to avoid. It's very easy. It's not nice to avoid people. It's easy to avoid people over your times. It is. Um, when you don't leave your house. Anyway, hopefully that's not our year. So that's our first episode of The People's Game for the year. We will be back next week with a retro rewind. We haven't decided what game yet. So if you want to let us know, you can reach out on our socials. That is uh, at SC underscore Mag underscore Oz or on our Facebook page, the Sporting Chance Media, our personal Instagram or Twitter handles, or even just leave a comment in the Footy Live app. We are everywhere and anywhere, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, your favourite podcast player, or you know what? We may even try and get a gig with Amazon. Who knows? We've, we've given enough plugs today that surely they uh, can give us a little cheeky slot there on their infinite-sized streaming network. <laughs>